From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. The podcast is sponsored by City Lights Brewing Company, an award-winning brewery and taproom set in the historic Milwaukee Gas Company buildings right on the banks of the Menominee River. As you know, I'm a home brewer and an investor in another brewery, which gives me a little more insight than the average beer drinker. I was impressed by the quality of the team and more importantly, their selection of innovative craft beers. You can enjoy a pint in the taproom overlooking the brew house or take in some fresh air in the relaxing beer garden set on the river. They also have a great beer-inspired food menu. Please visit citylightsbrewing.com for more details. When we talk about innovation, it's usually technology companies that come to mind, whether it be Apple, Google, Tesla, or Netflix. I would even put my former company, Cree, in that category. Their technology-based products are well-known, and these are the names we see on the lists of the most innovative companies. And when you think about great innovators, who comes to mind? The people that run these companies, the bigger-than-life technology visionaries whose product and business ideas have changed industries and, frankly, the world. We've all heard their stories many times, but a key principle of Innovators on Tap is that innovation is everywhere, and it's not just about technology. Today's episode is about innovation in traditional brick-and-mortar retailers, innovation led not by a technology visionary, but by an accountant who was able to use the language of numbers to tell a story that helped guide his approach to finding innovative solutions to very real business challenges. This accountant is Darren Jackson, who was the CFO of Nordstrom's, the CFO and then COO of Best Buy, and ultimately the chairman and CEO of Advance Auto Parts. When it comes to innovation, these may not be companies that typically come to mind. Yet like many other businesses, they learn that if you don't innovate, you die. In our conversation, we take on the question of how large management-driven companies find ways to innovate. Darren's story isn't one of ego or bluster, and you will quickly realize just how thoughtful and insightful he is when it comes to innovation or any other topic. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. So, Darren, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Innovators on Tap. It's good to be with you, Chuck. I want to start with a story, something that Mike McDonald, who was the CEO of Carson Peary Scott as it went through bankruptcy in the early 90s, and I know you worked with him. He said he thinks you were about 26 at the time, and you were sitting in front of an auditorium full of creditors telling them that they wouldn't be getting paid. And his quote was, Darren dealt with the situation with ease. We walked out of there with the creditors not liking things, but they understood it, and they respected our position. And as I read that, I was just struck by what it must have been like to be in that situation as a 26-year-old. And my guess is it probably, it had some effect on who you are and how you thought about things. Can you give us some perspective on that? Yeah, well, I was brave enough to say that because I was the closest one to the door and I could get out alive. When I look back on that is that failure is your friend. And what I mean by that is that so many people fear failure that they only come up to the boundaries of failure without going over. 
And it's until you can kind of get through the boundaries of failure and realize the sun's coming up the next day, you're going to have another opportunity. Most of that anxiety is anxiety you create in your own head. I mean, it was real at 26. We owed people a billion dollars and 14,000 jobs. But what was the reality is that if we could get through that day and actually start anew, we would have a chance to do something different and potentially save 14,000 jobs and pay some people some money back and have a better life. But my learning for sure is that a lot of times you get up to the boundary of failure and you back away. Until you push through failure and make sure that you understand failure is your friend, it is not your enemy, because then you'll actually pursue different things and have an open-mindedness for yourself and others. So it reminds me of an interview I heard that President Obama had done near the end of his time. And he had mentioned that if he was going to run again or be president again, he would have been far better prepared because he finally realized that failure happens and you get through it and it's really not all that bad and that it it really empowered him to think about things and do things amazingly. And it, and it led me to uh, this concept that I stumbled across, which is somewhere it was said that failure is the fuel of innovation. I think people think of it as a bad thing, but it's really learning. And if you realize it's a learning experience, it, it's, it's a powerful tool to do something else. You jumped on it before I did, is that it's the fuel for learning. And it's really important to be able to separate yourself from it. A lot of times people get stuck in their own tracks because they assign failure to themselves versus recognizing failure and many times is just part of a process. And so when you depersonalize it and stare at it for what it is, it, you didn't set out to do something to fail. You set out to actually achieve an outcome. Failure is just a step in the process. So one of the things I learned when I worked with Dr. Jerry Bell, who's a psychologist and a pretty well-renowned leadership coach and, and was my personal coach, is that you can tell a lot about someone if you understand how they grew up. Those, those experiences tend to shape them in really unique ways. And so can you give us an example of kind of some of the early influences that you think shaped you and maybe helped you think about failure the way you do now? I would say probably a few things in the early days. I'd say role models are super important in your life. The role models I had, two best I had, were my parents and what they had to overcome. My dad was raised by his grandparents, so he was orphaned, and my mom was raised by a single mom. And somehow they found their way together and uh, were married for 50 years um, before they passed. And, you know, they just had simple goals in life. They had three boys, and they wanted them to all go to college. But underneath that was this determination. I mean, that's what I took away from him is determination, just really important in life. Focus in terms of have some goals. And there was a level of work ethic that I just admired about both of them. And those were just ingredients. You know, they weren't technical ingredients at all. They were ingredients about the person. And so my parents as role models, overcoming things was critical. Determination was critical. Focus and simple was part of it as well. Probably the last thing that sticks out for me, because I was an accountant, accountants are not innovators by nature, at least perceived. Mike McDonald, who you mentioned, was probably one of my top two mentors in life. And what he really taught me is not to get 
positioned in life, positioned in a role, you aren't your role. You know, you are who you are and what you bring to a role in life. And Mike was extraordinarily successful. But what he's magnificent at was to be able to draw out of people uh, what their strengths are, not necessarily just cast them in terms of who they are. You brought up the fact that you were an accountant, and uh, I think I've mentioned to you in the past, I don't normally associate accountants with innovation. How did you go from debits and credits to being someone who is good at looking for new problems and finding ways to solve them? When people ask me, why'd you go into accounting? It's hard to imagine somebody having a love for a debit and a credit. What it was for me was it was storytelling. A lot of times what financials do is they just tell you the story of a business. And if you like good stories, what you do is you try to understand the plots, the characters, the opportunities. And so I was drawn to that more out of learning a language understanding a story and where things could go. The greatest innovations that I've experienced have really been those around understanding the story of customers. So we talked about, you, and I think you started to allude this a little bit about what is innovation. And I think in the past you described there's two different types. And the first one you said is that there's kind of an innovation where people who can see around corners, they can see something people can imagine. And when you describe it that way, it felt like a lot of the innovators I was around in my time at Cree. But then you described a second one, which I thought was really interesting. It was someone who had the ability to see really hard problems and go out in the world and find someone who can help you solve them. There were three examples that come to mind, and maybe I'll use the one that's uh, most current. Is um, Remember, I was at Best Buy, and I was with a young man, Sean Skelly, where we're looking out the window, and there's these beetle bugs whipping by. And I said, I, I don't know what they do, but Sean, can we go have lunch with whoever runs that little business. And it was a young man named Robert Stevens. And Robert came and had lunch with us, had lunch again with us. And then he walked us through a Best Buy store. And he said, do you feel that? Do I feel what? He said, do you feel all of that angst and pain and frustration that is happening right there? And he pointed to our service center. I said, I, I certainly feel the cost. He goes, no, there's pain in that part of the business. And he said, you're fixing the wrong problem. You are trying to fix a software problem with a hardware solution. And the software was human software. Back in the day, when we had a problem with your notebook, what did we do? We said, well, thanks, Chuck, for bringing it in. We're just going to pack it up and send it over to Sony for 30 days, and then you're going to get back. And he goes, I guarantee 90% of the time it's a software problem, and we can probably fix it here in the next 30 minutes. And I said... Well, Robert, I don't know about that, but why don't you let me buy your business and you could come teach us how to do it. And he goes, I'll let you know when I want to take over Best Buy. <laughs> so we paid $3 million for seven beetle bugs and 10 employees. <laughs> it's hard to justify at the time, but what Robert could see is where the future was going. If you think about a geek back in the day, and this is circa 15 years ago, he said, you know what? You're going to have to have a whimsical character because he had the vision that women were going to take over that space. He said they have to be a customer service agent first, friendly, easy to get to, because ultimately you're going to want them to let these service agents into their home. You know, ultimately they're going to make the decisions about technology in the future, and you want the agents to guide them. I think they have 20,000 geeks today. His point was he could see and 
feel, and it's not a small point, there's a level of EQ empathy in the innovation process. It can actually fit into that first category, Chuck, that people can experience and feel the pain of others in order to begin to fix the problem. So he could fix that problem. And really great innovation comes from having microphones on the edges. If you can't hear it and feel it, you can't change it. Darren, that is just a great story about the origins of the Geek Squad. You know, as I as I think about that Best Buy business, you guys overcame one challenge, and then you were faced with an even bigger challenge, which was Amazon. So how did you guys deal with the Amazon threat? So it's hard to be number one and get knocked off your perch. And that's really what Best Buy was. They grew to $45 billion and just had this foothold on the industry of electronics. And then when Amazon came through, and essentially through pricing, and I would say through convenience in their catalog, began to rewrite the rules of customer experience, you had a business that you get set in your ways, you have a level of ego, you believe just working harder is a solution. And for a period of time, you're in denial. You know, there was a period back in the late 90s, people thought Amazon was going to go out of business. So, Darren, I'm really curious. Can you tell us about the first time that you met Jeff Bezos? We had a meeting and there was this young man who came to Best Buy and he said, we're really good at this electronic commerce and you're really good at electronics and selling products. So why don't I make you a deal? I will be your back end for all your internet business and you can be the front end expertise as the products and together we can reach whole new customer segments. And you know, it was tantalizing because what he could do at that point in time for the cost he could do it, he said, this might be a good idea. And then he left us and he went to Target and told him the same story. And I remember being in that meeting with Dick Schultz, our founder, and I said, mm. Dick said, this is pretty interesting. And I said, it is. But I said, Dick, I don't think he's thinking about just selling books. <laughs> <laughs> and if we do this, we will essentially be teaching him the business. So we didn't. And uh, Target did. And then five years later, Target figured out how to get out of that relationship. What you could see even back then is that in Best Buy, we made a decision because we could just do it better than anybody else. And we had run out of that track. And now what we found is that when he rewrote the rules on customer experience and price, once we got past denial, I would say it took massive change at the top. And they brought in Hubert. And what Hubert recognized is that he had to do a cultural reset on the organization. I would say the rules are going to continue to change. I'm not smart enough to know what the next tectonic plate shift is. If they don't move with it, they'll go away. And ultimately, I think we're all grappling with the role of brick and mortar in the future. Yeah, you know, when we were trying to figure out how to uh, sell the LED bulb, we realized we needed to get in front of customers. And, you know, what retail provided us was we had done testing. And if, if we could get someone to see and experience the product, to actually touch it, we could get them to buy it. So I think it may not be brick and mortar as we see it today, but this ability to experience things, it's the, it's the, it's the idea that you can't consumer test something someone's never experienced before. And so the innovation really requires this ability to show people. And I just wonder if brick and mortar doesn't still have at least some role there going forward. It'll be interesting, Chuck. So when you buy a car today, I think what the numbers are is the internet has stripped $2 billion of profitability out of the new car sales. 
the internet has effectively created transparency. And the other thing that's happened with that transparency, it's really forced new car dealerships to ask themselves, where do we add value? And one of the things that I hold in my head is that as a society, those that provide a frictionless customer experience will continue to gain share. And friction comes in many different ways. If you think about Amazon, they say Amazon has existed before. It used to be the Sears catalog, and Sears had the best distribution model. Amazon has the best catalog in the business. It has transparency. It has customer reviews, and it arguably has the best delivery model today. But deeper than that, I think those that reduce anxiety in the experience will be the winners. So you started talking about cars, and this is a great segue into your uh, post Best Buy experience. And you go to work as the CEO of Advanced Auto Parts. And can you tell us a little about when you got there? What was the problem the day you showed up that you thought needed to be solved? In simple terms, the problem that needed to be solved is that we were serving a group of customers that, quite frankly, were dissipating in the smaller part of the market called DIY, and it was 80% of our business. And the market that was growing and was growing at 5 to 6% and two-thirds of the market called wholesale delivery, it was only 20% of our business. And when you got down to that, again, that expression of pain again, the pain on the DIY side, you know, it happens as soon as you lift the hood and you go, where do I start? So just the number of humans that could work on cars that in some cases have eight to 10 onboard computers is, is a dwindling group. And those in the delivery business and the Firestones, the Goodyears, the Monroes of the world, they have this backlog of business, which really means that they had a bunch of moms with kids sitting in the waiting area (laughs) that if you don't have your car, a lot of times your life shuts down. So in simple terms, I said, you know what, 80% of our business is pointed in a way that just is not where the growth is and isn't going to meet the need and sustain our business. We're going to have to reposition our business into the two-thirds of the market where the future is. So you show up, you're the CEO, and and I understand you realize that you're basically in the small shrinking market. That first day, how did you go about figuring out the problem that needed to be solved? So um, I wasn't smart enough to figure it out for sure. What I found is that in order to move organizations, and at that point we would have been maybe 2,500 stores, probably close to $4 billion in revenue, which put us about 30,000 team members. And literally, before I started, I gathered 50 advanced auto part team members, and they were a cross-section of team members. And I remember I hand-wrote a note, and I said, well, here's here's three or four questions where I I just need your help. One of the questions is, what is the largest opportunity that we have at Advanced Auto Parts that we're not pursuing today? And then what's in your way? And this goes to a little bit of putting the microphones, you know, in a place you can hear. The 50 people that were there and answered the question, I don't know that it was unanimous, but it was darn close that the biggest opportunity we have is to be successful in this wholesale delivery business. What's in your way? We don't have the resources. I said, well, what does that mean? So, well, you have to have a sales team. And if you failed out at, in our business before and we didn't want to get rid of you, we put you in sales. <laughs> and so 
what that meant is we weren't putting our best and our brightest and we weren't focused on that. And, and literally, you know, we went from a team of call it 50 people to, I think when we left, we had 500 in sales and they came from a host of different parts of the business and outside the business. But there were a series of things that, again, to get change, you have to get buy-in. And a lot of times to get buy-in, the best ideas are already in an organization. They are there, but there is limits and boundaries. And unfortunately, there's hierarchy. In that day, I didn't know this was occurring, but I'm on Fastnell's board of directors, and their founder, Bob Kierlin, taught me this term that I've used ever since he taught it. He said, you know what? This business works for a lot of reasons, but two of them, chaotic communication, and the other one is decentralized management. And underneath those was this thought that chaotic communication is create an organization that everybody can talk to everybody without fear. Two, create an organization that everybody feels like they're running their own business, a decentralized organization. Underneath all of it, they create an environment that creates innovation. So if these ideas are already in the organization and it's about removing the obstacles, why is it that so many companies then struggle to take what apparently the ideas are there and, and to implement them? In other words, why before you got to advance auto parts or in, in any other situation, what is it you think that's getting in the way that stops these people from being able to go out and solve problems and create change and drive innovation? Well, it's probably different in different organizations, but there's probably a common thread and it's called ego. And it could be organizational ego or individual ego. I once had a different boss who was pretty smart. And when talking about becoming a CEO, remember the advice he gave to me is he said, those things that make a CEO successful are the very thing that will bring a CEO down because they have been rewarded for getting them to a certain spot and they're not going to give it up. And so you've got to find a way in the individual leading the company to be able to honestly suppress their ego at times and let the better ideas get to the right place. And then the other thing is how the power structure works. I've been in essentially pretty large businesses my whole life. And the reality is, depending on how the power structures work in a business, the, the pocket vetoes that can occur every step of the way will wear out some of the best ideas. Practically, how you demonstrate it as the leader of an organization or leaders is that ability to suppress your ego. One of my observations is that you can't manage innovation, that uh, it's actually a leadership problem. And, and management is, is essentially all about trying to get people to control. You're trying to get them to control their behavior, right? Do something that's predetermined because you want a predetermined or predictable outcome. And yet at the same time, innovation is trying to get someone to do something new that hasn't been done before. How did you go about either finding people within the organization that were good at that or retraining the ones you had to let go of these management principles and embrace these new ideas. I think the great innovators are different in my mind than the, the great improvers. A lot of big businesses have the great improvers. They improve on a process. You know, they can improve on an experience, but they don't transform. Their enjoyment is day in, day out, making those improvements in the business. The ones that were the great innovators, entrepreneurs, 
they're cause-driven. It's, it's just different. It's hard to describe. And your job in the leadership is that, you know, when they say, okay, I'm going to create the innovation, you know, floor, and I'm going to put all the innovators over there. I can't tell you that I've ever seen that work. I can say we've gotten decent improvements out of that, but the transformational improvements were as if someone was curing cancer. And to build that in a culture, what happens is that you begin to attract people into that culture too. So you get that type of transformation. It's because it's a social scientist identifying a cause-driven person to go get it. I was working with a company one day. They basically tried your idea of let's create a floor full of this innovation. And and they took, you know, they looked at their team and they tried to find their most talented people and they put them on there. And, and I asked, well, how did you judge them? He said, well, these are our highest performers. And as we talked about it, they were their highest performers in a system that was built around a bunch of management processes. So they were the best managers. And I looked at them and I said, well, why would you expect that to work. And they flipped it around. And what they said to me was, is, okay, well, where would you look from? I said, I'd look from on the edges. To me, every company has, you know, they, they rank performance in many different ways. But, you know, your performance process is typically, you know, built around what's most important. And so most companies, it's around management. But I always noticed in organizations, there was, there was these two groups I'll call on the edges. And, and one is these very talented people that could do the management stuff well enough, but really weren't all that interested. And, and they could tell they were eager and almost like they were getting ready to leave at any moment. They were frustrated on one side. And then there was this other group who actually wasn't good at the management stuff at all, but they were also pretty talented and they were equally frustrated. They were kind of the, the misfits. But that if you took those two groups and put them on that floor, that's basically what we were doing at Cree's, right? We, we built our innovation teams not around the middle of what was good at running the company today. We built it around these people on the edges. It's almost counter to what most organizations are comfortable doing because you're saying, okay, I'm going to trust all my innovation to the people that are the least bought in to my current success. But if you think about it, that, that's exactly what you yeah, want to do, right? right? I mean, and so, so, so my guess though is there were, you found at least a few of those people on the edges that you could start to build this idea around. Is that a fair way to think about it? It is a fair way to think about it. And sometimes like in my role or in your role at Cree, knowing the people that are in your leadership team that can more clearly see those people. And that's part of it as well. For innovation to work sometimes, hierarchy gets in the way, but it's our job to understand, or our job was to understand the people that could see the people and the ideas. My conversation with Darren kept going. So we decided to make this a two-part episode. In part two, we pivot to Darren's second career, where he has done a ton of work around education reform. Be sure to check out that conversation. Innovators on Tap was started to provide fresh insights, and I hope you agree that part one of this conversation did just that. Darren's ideas around chaotic communication, decentralized hierarchy, suppressing your ego, and putting microphones on the edges are all important concepts and mindsets that you can apply to almost any problem. Darren's story proves that innovation is something that can be applied to any business or organization. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening on this podcast 
will help us do just that. We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is that anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.